Well, good morning, church family. I'm so excited to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Matthew 10 again. That's going to be our passage of Scripture. So during World War II, there was a church building in Germany that was destroyed. After it was destroyed, the members of this church started to survey the church in the surrounding areas to see the damage that was done to their church. They were pleased that a statue they had made of Jesus Christ with his arms outstretched like this was still standing. But in taking a closer look at the statue, they realized that both of the hands of this statue had been sheared off by a falling beam from the church building. It seemed like a great tragedy at this time, but yet when a sculpture, um, a, a, a sculptor in the town offered to replace the broken hands, the church leaders refused. In seeing the statue that way for some time, they came to realize that the, 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 the symbolic meaning of Jesus having no hands brought to attention that without us doing the mission of God, Christ has no hands. And this was a reminder to them. This is the truth of God's word that we see in today's text. In leading up to chapter 10, Jesus has preached. He's been teaching the principles of what it looks like for the kingdom of God to be at hand. And he has personally demonstrated this power that he, he has over um, demons. And he, he's healing people. And he's demonstrated the, the teach that the authority comes from the sovereign God and the king of kings. Today in our scripture, we're going to see that Jesus takes this same authority and he applies it to the ministry of the apostles. As we, as we enter chapter 10, we find that Jesus is now in his first Galilean ministry. He's been teaching in the center of God. So he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and he's healing every disease and every kind of sickness among people. He has taught what does it mean to be... Um, what does it mean to be um, the, the kingdom of God at hand? And he's also has proved that he is the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the Messiah and himself. He has proclaimed the good news that people need to repent and prepare for the kingdom of God into their hearts, into their lives. Even as Jesus has done all of this to prove he is the Messiah, even though he has healed diseases, even though he has healed sickness, the people's reaction to this teaching and miracles has been mixed. Most people are amazed at the wisdom of Jesus in his teaching and the power that he has. But for the most part, people see these miracles or they, or they listen to his teaching and they go back to their routine way of life. Others start to reject Jesus and become agnostic to his miracles and his message. The religious leaders of that day particularly accused Jesus of being empowered by Satan and his demons. But even despite all of that, there were a small group of people who began to respond positively to the message of Jesus and these miracles that he started to, um, to do. Jesus condemned the religious leaders for their blasphemy and he warns people about their unbelief. 
Last week we saw the reason why Jesus does what he does. Why does he heal people? Why does he um, cast out demons? Last week we learned that that was because of the compassion he has for people. Jesus' words here are forced his disciples to see the bigger picture of the power and the authority of his work. Today we see the response Jesus wants them to have, the reality of when we pray for the work of Christ, we will become personally involved. Which brings us to Matthew chapter 10. So the first point in your bulletin there is a divine commission. A divine commission. Look with me back at verses 1 through 4. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. The name of the 12 disciples are these. First Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Appius and Thaddeus, Simon the Selet, and Judas Iscariot, which betrayed him. Matthew tells us that Jesus called to him his 12 disciples. In Luke 6, we see that this was not haphazardly done. Luke 6 tells us that before Jesus does this, he goes out to the mountain and pray, and he continues in, in prayer to God. And when a day came, he came to his disciples and called from them 12, which he named apostles. Because the harvest is so great and the laborers to harvest the mission field are few, Jesus called and commissioned these 12 men and he empowers them in a supernatural way to be his co-workers in the harvest of the gospel ministry. Now these, people, these 12 men were already disciples of Jesus. They were already students of who Jesus was and was already following him so that they could be, learn to be more like him. But now Jesus does something dramatic. As he takes the authority given to him by God, and he's going to give them to the apostles. Now, the word apostle here refers to someone who has authority of the sender. Authority of the sender is what it, what it means to be an apostle. And so with Jesus here, Jesus is saying that as you go and as you do the mission of the work, you are doing them under my authority in my name. They were to have the right and the power to act upon um, Jesus' behalf. Jesus gives them authority over unclean spirits and on the demons that they might cast them out. He also gives them the authority to heal sicknesses and diseases, just as like Jesus has been doing in his earthly ministry. Now, one thing we know about these 12 men is that they were not extraordinary men. They were not of men of high standing, of high character. They were not men that we know of of very strong integrity or courageous. Jesus spent the night praying about who he was to call and chose them so you would assume that as Jesus is looking or as he's praying, you would assume he would pick the best of the best men available at that time. Yet we learn that these men were just ordinary men. Most of these men would not even qualify 
to be missionaries in a lot of our mission organizations. They wouldn't pass the test. Most of these men were just blue-collar men. The truth is, these men fit the words that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is love and despised in the low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to not things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. These men were nothing special. They were just like you and I. The reminder here is that God doesn't call the qualified, He qualifies those He calls. God doesn't choose you and I based on our abilities, but based upon his abilities. John MacArthur once said, The greatness of God's grace is seen in his choosing the undeserving to be his people and unqualified to do his work. It should be a marvelous encouragement to every believer to know that just as Elijah, the apostles had nature like ours. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I have nothing to, to, I have nothing of me that would make God to use me. And I would say this morning, that is true because God doesn't want wise people. God, God doesn't need any of that. God just wants someone who is willing to be used by him. And that's who these 12 men were. So let's quickly look at these this list of men here, and, we're, and I'll give you just a, a brief background of who they were. The first one mentioned there is Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Peter is the very first apostle mentioned, and in any list you see of the apostles, Peter is usually the first one mentioned. Now, Peter was brass, he was bold, and he was always asking questions which others shied away from. And this led to be both a blessing and also a curse on him. I've always heard that Peter was always the apostle who put his foot in his mouth. He was always asking questions that, that sometimes didn't need to be asked. He was a man of a wonder. Uh, but he was also a man of action. He was always found in the middle of things, and he was bold. He was bold in what he did and what he said. Remember, it was Peter who arose against the soldiers in the garden when they came to arrest Jesus. Um, after his resurrection, Jesus told Peter and the other apostles to wait in Jerusalem, but Peter did not heed to this and returned to fishing. So Peter's just like us. He, he heard the words of God, and he was like, well, God's really not going to return back. I'm just going to go back to, to what I know, which was fishing to him. We all know that Jesus turned him into the apostle Peter, and he became no longer a fisher of fish, but he became a fisher of men. And Peter would go out um, sharing the gospel throughout Jerusalem, Samaria, and then ultimately the Gentiles. Tradition tells us that he was crucified, but upside down at his request because he felt unworthy to die as Jesus did. Next, we have Andrew, who was Peter's brother. They were both fishermen, 
Andrew had been a follower of John the Baptist, it says, and he was known to have been preparing for the coming of the Messiah. So when John pointed out Jesus, Andrew became one of his very first disciples. Now, Andrew, unlike his brother Peter, was much more reserved. He was much more shy and quiet. Um, but he was still inquisitive when it came to Jesus. Andrew would sit in private and, and ask his questions in private, whereas Peter would just openly ask his questions in front of the group. Andrew's life has been characterized by tradition as humility, openness, and a lack of prejudice. He saw the need to bring the gospel to not only his fellow Jews, but also all of mankind. Then we have James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Again, they were fishermen. They were friends with Simon and Andrew, and both sets of brothers were called by Jesus on the very same day. James and John quickly became part of Jesus' inner circle. They were with Jesus when he was transfigured, and they were also with Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed before his arrest and crucifixion. We see that in the, the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus and his disciples were traveling through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem, they refused lodging because of their hostility that existed between Jews and Samaritans. And in response, James asked this question of Jesus in Luke 9. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Their constant passion for Jesus was commendable, but often their judgment was not. Just like you and I. Philip and Bartholomew. Philip was from Bethsaida, and he was also called a friend of Simon Peter and Andrew. And he is first mentioned in John 1.43, where Jesus finds him and calls him to follow him. It was not long before Philip we, that found his friend Nathaniel and tells him, We have found of him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, in John 1.45. Then we have Bartholomew, whose name, which is the name that Mark, Matthew, and Luke use instead of Nathaniel. Bartholomew was much more controlled by God's truth than his, his personal prejudice, and he ended up following Jesus, to which Jesus said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit, in John 1, 47. Then we have Thomas which we probably all know as Doubting Thomas, because he said that he would not believe Jesus had risen from the dead until he had saw him and he touched him. When Jesus took the disciples to raise Lazarus from the dead, Thomas, being aware of the dangers of going close to Jerusalem, said, let us go also that we may die with him. Because Thomas fully expected the religious leaders would come from Jerusalem to seize and kill Jesus and his disciples, yet within this, um, within this was a commitment that was unequal. Thomas really, truly believed Jesus as the Son of God, and he wanted to be with him so badly that he was ready to die with Jesus. We see, uh, we see this again in John 14, when Jesus told his disciples he was going away. Thomas immediately wanted to know where, where when, and also how was Jesus going away. 
Then we have Matthew the tax collector. He's also known as Levi by his Jewish name. It's interesting here that we get what Matthew's um, um, career was. He was a tax collector. And therefore, he was considered to be a traitor to his nation and was considered worse than thieves and prostitutes of that day. Whatever his character was, it was radically changed when Jesus came up to him and said, follow me. Because the Bible says Matthew immediately um, got up from his tax table and followed Jesus, and he never looked back in Matthew 9, 9. Matthew is the perfect example to you and I that our past is of no hindrance to God. He can and will radically change us and use us if we will let him. Now, the next two, James and Thaddeus, Simon the Seller, we don't know much about. Um, James is also called James the Lesser. Um, and there's, there's argument as to, as to what exactly that means. Um, maybe it's a reference to either him being younger in age or smaller in size. Um, nothing that he said or did is recorded, but we do know that he did preach the gospel in Persia, and he, he was also crucified there. Thaddeus was a name usually referred to the youngest of a family. He was also called Judas, the son of James. And the only recorded words we have of him was in John 14, 22, when he asked Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And then we have Simeon the Zealot. He was a member of the radical political party known as the Zealots. And their goal was to overthrow, overthrow Rome, and they used guerrilla tactics such as assassinations and ambushes as an effort to, end, to achieve their end. But whatever originally motivated Simeon to join Jesus, his national zeal was replaced by his devotion to Jesus. All of these um, little-known men were faithful to Jesus and endured many, many things on his behalf. And finally, you have Judas, who betrayed him. Judas was a man of self-desire. He was a greedy man of whom the scripture tells us that he stole from the group's finances when he was a treasurer. And his greatest act of greediness was the betrayal of our Savior for 30 pieces of silver. And now some people would ask, why would Jesus allow Judas to be an apostle? Why is Judas included in, these, in this list? And I think it's a reminder to us that there are many people today who are sitting in our churches who pretend to love God, but they reject the ultimate teachings of God. They pretend to love God, but they reject God's will in the pursuit of their own will. But as we see, God can still use that person. Because Judas was evil, but he was necessary. He was necessary in that someone had to betray Jesus in order for the scriptures to be fulfilled. God needed a man with a wicked heart, and Jesus called him and chose him, and Judas fulfilled the reason he was chosen. But Judas is the greatest tragedy of humanity in that he lived for three complete years with Jesus. He saw the miracles. He heard the teachings. 
He saw Jesus cast out demons. He saw everything that Jesus was about, and yet he still turned his back on him for 30 pieces of silver. After Jesus called his 12 disciples and appointed them to be his apostles, and in doing so, he, they became the hands and feet of, his, of the ministry of Jesus with his authority. We've seen now that Jesus has clearly given a divine commission to these 12. Now we're going to look at a clear message, which is point two of your, in your bulletin, a clear message that they were to bring to the people. Look with me at verses 5 through 6. Then Jesus, the, the 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So I'm going to pull a hops in here and, and for a little bit. I'm going to give you four points under point two. So just hang with me. So I want you to see four principles here that it comes when, it, when we look at sharing the message of Christ. And the first point there is that the gospel message needs to be focused. We see here the focus of the ministry that Jesus told them to go after a specific group of people, which was the lost sheep of Israel. They were not to go to the Gentiles yet. They were not to go to the Samaritans. Their plan was crystal clear to go to Israel as God's chosen nation. And they were to take the knowledge and understanding of God from there to all nations. But it first must start with the house of Israel. This was the Apostle Paul's ministry. He went first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. In Acts 10, Peter even received a vision from the Lord prompting him to go to Cornelius, a Gentile, and deliver the gospel to him and his, house, and his household. In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells us that we are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The gospel ministry for Jesus is a ministry that needs to be focused. Now, it is not physically possible for us to do, to do everything there is to reach people with the gospel. You cannot do it as one person. PBC cannot do it as one church. The Southern Baptist Convention can't do it as one group of churches with a single motion, a single motivation. Each of us play a vital role in the design of what God wants us to accomplish. Notice, remember, remember what um, Jesus said in Matthew 9, 37, that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Jesus knew that this was a huge task, and he knew that there would not be many people willing to be those who would go and tell the message. But we need to, we, we, we need to stay focused. We need to seek God in it. The disciples were man seeking God's will, he called them, he trained them, and now he's sending them out to the harvest around them. In the same way, we need to seek first what the Lord wants from you and I. Just because we see a need does not necessarily mean we are the one that God wants us to meet it. But then again, perhaps you are the one that God wants you to meet that need. We're bringing us to our second point. 
the gospel ministry for Jesus is the gospel message needs to be clear. Look at Matthew 10, 7. And and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of God is at hand. One of the things that makes Christianity weak, especially in North America, is the fact that we do not do a good job of presenting a clear gospel message. The gospel message is not difficult. It's very simple. It's very easy that even a child can understand it. So what is the gospel message? It's that God is holy and he created humanity or he created man and women in his image. We have turned away from God and we have sinned. And because of that, we deserve the full wrath of God's judgment. There is nothing that we can do to escape this because of our sin. But God, in his love, in his mercy, in his grace, determined to redeem us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, to be buried, and to raise from the dead. And God offers salvation from sin and the effects of of that sin with a simple message to repent and believe. It's very clear. Now, some groups like to say, well, you must do A, B, C, D, and E. They like to add to this gospel message. Some people would say that the gospel is psychological, so you, have to, you must understand it in that way. Some people would say that the gospel message brings with it wealth and prosperity and a, pain, a pain-free, carry-free life. But the gospel message is crystal clear. We are sinners in need of a Savior in which God provided through Jesus Christ. And if we repent and believe and place our faith and trust in that alone, we will be saved. And that's the message that Jesus gives them. Very simply, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, so you got to remember who are they going towards. They're going to the Jews. The Jews would understand what this meant because they had been looking for the Messiah. They had been looking for their king for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the message to them is simple. The Messiah you've waited for, the Messiah that's been prophesied about in the Old Testament, he's here and he's, and he's bringing salvation to you. The third uh, principle is that the gospel ministry should reflect the work of Christ. Look with me at verse 8 of Matthew 10. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Now, you may read that and you're saying, I've never seen someone raise the dead, or I've never seen someone cast out demons. And that's okay. But I think the, the principle here is that God is calling us to reflect the ministry of his work. We can reflect the healing of the sick by praying for and caring for those who are burdened with sickness and illness. We can reflect raising the dead by praying for the lost and sharing the gospel with the lost so that the souls that are dead to God might raise from the dead and surrender their hearts and life to Jesus. We can reflect cleansing the lepers by loving and embracing 
in caring for the outcast and the marginalized or the least of these in life. We can, we can reflect casting out demons by waging war against evil through prayer and the word of God and taking stands against this darkness of Satan that continues to infect our homes, our, our communities, and our world. Which gets us to you receive without pay and give without pay means that we cannot minister in the same miraculous manner as the apostles did, but there is a principle that we need to follow, and that is to live a life of ministry. So our spiritual gifts, our natural talents, our money, our homes, everything that we have has come to us because of God's grace to us. And we should not be stingy in using what we have to serve the Lord by not serving others. We are to freely give of ourselves, whatever it may cost us. And the last principle we see here is that the gospel ministry is one who must trust God with our hearts and our lives. Now think about this. Jesus tells them to go, but he gives them stipulations on what does it mean to go. He says that you're not to take anything with you, no money, no extra clothes, no shoes, no staff. Basically for us, you don't take nothing with you. You don't pack a suitcase. You don't pack a bag. You don't take nothing with you. You just go. They would earn their living as they ministered. The principle here is that we need to trust God and not worry and fret and try to make provision for every possible circumstance that may come up. See, we are people who, who are thinkers. So we would think, okay, if I'm, if I'm walking, as they did back in that time, I'm going to need food eventually. I'm going to need water. I'm going to have to have some way to purchase these items. But the principle here is, is God is wanting them to fully rely on him to provide for everything that they needed. Now, if you think back to the Old Testament, we see this time and time again. When the, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness and God provides manna for them from heaven, he tells them, do not grab more than what you need. And we see that even back then, they were worried, okay, maybe this manna isn't going to be here tomorrow. So, that, so some of them would gather more than what they needed, but the next day, that food would be spoiled. They didn't fully trust God. We see in Matthew 6, we're told, do not be anxious about your life, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, this hits hard for me in, in the, the current situation of my, mine and my family's life. So, most of you know, but um, we have been without a home now for a little over a month. And many people have, have, have asked us, you know, what's keeping you going? I mean, we're, we're, we're technically homeless, which we're, we're not, though. Many people have graciously allowed us to stay with them and, and offer their homes up for us, and we're, we're thankful for that. But in, in many people's eyes, it's like, well, you serve this God, 
but he, but he hasn't provided in what many people's eyes is a basic necessity in a home. And that's true. He hasn't. But, but, but when, we, when we step back and we look at the bigger picture, we see so many other blessings that, that God has given us that we wouldn't have seen if, we, if he met our direct need of needing a home immediately, like, like we want him to do. Now, do we, do we desire a home? Yes, we do. Like, there's just something about being in your own home, your own space. Like, we haven't seen our, our, our physical stuff in over a month now. Um, it's, it's starting to get colder weather, so, like, we're starting to wonder, okay, what are we going to do if we don't have our stuff by, by wintertime? Like, all, everything that we have for winter is packed up. Um, I mean, like, we're coming up on the holidays. Like, my wife loves to decorate a house. Like, this is, this is hard. But one thing that keeps us going is that God is constantly providing for us in ways we, we, we are undeserved of. And that, that's the principle that God is wanting these disciples to, to hold to. Trust me to provide what you need, not necessarily what you want at that moment in your life. The fifth principle here is that when it comes to gospel ministry, is to concentrate on those who respond. Look at verse 11 through 13 with me. When you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Greet a household whenever you enter, and if the household is worthy, let your peace be upon it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. Now the house being referred to here is whatever home that they would stay in as they went from city to city or village. And it would be considered worthy based upon how the host or the hostess of the home received the apostles, but not on the condition of the house itself. The principle here is that we need to concentrate our efforts on those who respond to the message of the gospel Matthew 6, 15 says, Go into the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. But we got to realize that there are some who are, who are just going to reject the gospel no matter how many times you tell them. Do we still pray for them? Yes. Do we still seek after them? Yes. But eventually we, we, we have to say, Okay, God, I've, I've ministered to this person. I've shared the gospel. It is totally in your hands now. To relate this back to the harvest, we are to be busy gathering the wheat and not the weeds. And they're both there. There's there's going to be wheat and there's going to be weeds, but we need to focus on the harvest itself, which is the wheat and not necessarily the weeds. So we've seen the divine commission. We've seen the clear message that was to be preached. And now we get to our final point, which is we see the impending judgment to come. Look with me back at Matthew 10, the end of verse 13. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone, who, if, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that town or house. Truly I say to you, it will be, be more bearable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Here Jesus tells us, 
a point here that we need to stop sharing the gospel. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. Now, this may sound very harsh, but one thing we need, we need to remember is that we are not the Savior. We are just the messengers. We cannot convict the heart. We cannot cause someone to have a, a change of heart. All we can do is give them the message in a clear, understanding way, and the rest is up to Jesus or up to God. We need to remember that the gospel message is one of judgment, that people who die in their sin without salvation will wake up in hell, eternally separated from God. Now, if you're sharing with someone who may just be like, just maybe having a hard time understanding the gospel, or, it may, or you may start to see very small fruit come from your, your, the gospel presentation and over time, then yes, you keep pursuing, pursuing that. But I think what the principle here is that if you're sharing with someone and every time you talk about it, they are just constantly rejecting you, at that point, it's time that, that you no longer focus on them and just literally start praying for that person's heart to change with God's help. Or maybe someone else can come along and, and speak with that person. We are to always share the gospel, but at some point we, we are to remove ourselves from those who do not listen and fully turn it over to God. As followers of Jesus, we are to be his disciples. That means that we are to live as if we have been sent by God to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus calls his followers to be witnesses. Now, if you look at the the word witness in our dictionary, it means one who can give a firsthand account of something they have seen, heard, or experienced. The Greek word for witness in the original language starts with this basic meaning, but then makes a few changes to fully clarify what it means to be a witness for Jesus. To be a witness for Jesus is simply this, to give a first-hand account by sacrificially following Jesus because they have seen, heard, and experienced the life-changing, heart-transforming, soul-restoring power of the risen Christ. The work of salvation can only be accomplished by Jesus Christ and him alone. But the witness of that salvation could only be accomplished by those who have trusted and have been been saved by him. You cannot be a witness for Jesus Christ without you yourself first experiencing the radical transformation of salvation in your own life. Just like me, like, I can't tell you about working on cars. I have no experience in that. If you come to me with a car question, I'm going to be like, what, what does Google say? Like, that's my go-to. But I can tell you about Jesus because, he, because I have been radically changed by the power of the message of the gospel. And it's been applied to my life. And, and I can tell you, and I can look back over the years, and even like within the last couple of months, I can tell you about Jesus and what he means to me and my family and the power and stuff that we've seen him do in our lives. So I'm going to end with this. May we be the hands of Jesus 
that gather the harvest for Jesus by being willing to share the gospel. May we be the hands of Jesus that gather the harvest of Jesus by sharing the gospel of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for...